This is the first episode of The Gerrymandering Project, sponsored by Casper Mattress. If gerrymandering has you tossing and turning at night, well, this is the podcast for you. But there's a mattress that will do the trick as well. Casper's Comfort Foams guarantee you sleep cool and provide the right pressure relief and spinal alignment so you keep perfectly balanced in cushiony comfort all night. You deserve to have a great night's sleep every night, so try Casper Mattress. Go to casper.com and use code POLITICS. That's casper.com, code POLITICS. Terms and conditions apply. Actually, I get a little queasy about it sometimes because I think it's that important. It was like a eureka moment, and the rage, the anger that I felt that these people would commit this level of a crime against the democratic process was just astounding. I thought this commission was supposed to be nonpartisan. Damn it, you can't get any more partisan than this. When the Obama Justice Department says your maps are good and a federal judge says no, what in the hell is a state supposed to do? Hello and welcome to The Gerrymandering Project. It's a series we're doing at 538, looking at how we draw districts in America and what that means for our democracy. This is the podcast piece of that, but we're also doing plenty of work on this at the mothership 538.com as well. I'm Galen Drew. Essentially, the question is, how do we group voters together? And the answer to that question really has a lot to do with how much your vote actually counts and who gets elected. Gerrymandering has become a buzzword lately, and that's because people feel like that process of drawing districts, drawing groups of voters, has gone horribly wrong, and it's had negative implications for our democracy. So what exactly is gerrymandering, and how would you get rid of it if you wanted to? We're gonna spend the next six episodes trying to answer those questions. Well, I think that it's important that we have someone that represents our voice. I have never personally been one to think that increasing the numbers of the Black Caucus necessarily equated to a plus for the African American community. With 80% Democratic districts or 80% Republican districts uh, and no competition, uh, that that leads to more and more polarization in Congress and it gets harder and harder to get things done. Non-competitive elections really means you don't have representative democracy. Today we're kicking things off with a primer on gerrymandering, but over the next few episodes, we're going to travel to different states and get an on-the-ground view of the effects of gerrymandering there and steps reformers are taking to try to change the system. Those are going to be audio documentaries, but today we're just in the studio kind of laying out what we're going to be talking about throughout this series. And here with me to do that is Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report. He's also a contributor to 538. Hey, Dave, how's it going? It's going great. You travel around the country and talk to politicians in all different kinds of far-flung, weirdly shaped districts. What kind of experience do you have with gerrymandering on the ground? Well, I have to admit, growing up, I was a nerd for two things, geography and politics. And gerrymandering is kind of the ultimate intersection of those. I would watch C-SPAN and see members speak from the floor of the House and wonder, how did they get there? And as I read more about their elections, I figured out that geography was destiny. And the way that the maps were drawn had an awful lot to do with the kinds of people who ended up with real power in Washington. 
I recently saw online that Asheville, North Carolina hosted a 5K race where the contestants actually run the district lines that cut through the city. It's called like the gerrymander race or something like that. I mean, it feels like gerrymandering is really having a moment, a cultural moment in America. Well, it seems like everyone is blaming our society's ills or at least our government's ills on the way that we draw our political boundaries because we are, let's face it, really polarized and people are looking for an insidery reason why it is our government's dysfunctional. Okay, so I have a million dollar question for you. It seems really simple, but what is a district? And like more than that, like what is the significance of a district? Well, at its most basic level, it's a collection of residents. It's a collection of voters that live in a contiguous area. And a district is typically around 700,000 people these days. What's at stake in how those district lines are drawn? Everything. Redistricting has the power to alter the complexion of Congress on everything from race to income, to partisan makeup. Just about the only thing you can't redistrict is gender because it's really hard to divide men from women. When we talk about gerrymandering, that has a negative connotation. But what's behind gerrymandering is a process, and that process is redistricting. So let's lay out really what redistricting is, clear of any of the negative connotations that come with gerrymandering. So people often confuse reapportionment and redistricting. They're two different things. So we hold a census every 10 years as mandated by the Constitution. And that determines how many seats each state gets in the House. That's the reapportionment phase of it. The real tricky part is then how those seats are allocated within the states. And that's what redistricting is all about. Based on the census, each state has to come up with a map that divides the state into however many seats it has into equally populous districts. And that means dividing communities in some instances. It means a lot of controversial decisions. In general, who is responsible for drawing these lines? In most places, it's state legislators who are drawing districts not only for themselves, but also for Congress. And that, that's led a lot of people to argue that politicians are selecting their voters rather than the other way around. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about redistricting, they just say, oh, why did they get to redistrict then? But this happens every 10 years after the census, and the census happens at the 10-year mark. So 1990, 2000, 2010, and then redistricting is the year after that. So the most recent round of redistricting would have been 2011. Right. And so the election that happens right before that round of redistricting is the election that determines a lot of what happens. Right. And for the longest time, Democrats really had a stranglehold on a lot of state legislatures. And so they had an outsized role in this process. But in 2010, Republicans won the redistricting lottery because they couldn't have picked a better year than 2010 to have a great election. And they won power to draw four times as many districts as Democrats. How long have state governments been responsible for drawing districts? Since nearly the founding of the republic. And it was 1812 when Elbridge Gerry's original gerrymander, as the purists would say, rather than gerrymander, made its appearance in the Boston Gazette. Right. Elbridge Gerry was the governor of Massachusetts who, I mean, is at least credited with drawing the first politically motivated gerrymander or gerrymander to kind of get his way. And from what I understand about that story, it worked. 
So let's get into that gerrymandering. I know this is a loaded question, and we're going to spend a lot of this series actually unpacking it, but what is gerrymandering? Gerrymandering is the manipulation of political boundaries to achieve a certain aim, and that aim could depend on the map drawer's motivation. It could be a partisan gerrymander designed to include as many districts as possible that favor the mapmaker's party. It could be a racial gerrymander designed to elect as many candidates of the minority community's choice as possible. Or it could be a map that's designed to protect a certain incumbent who thinks that there are a couple neighborhoods or a couple counties that especially benefit them. So it could be a number of things. I feel like recently one of the defining factors that people talk about when they talk about gerrymandering is just the way that the lines look. You know, you look at a map, this congressional district looks odd or it spreads out all over the state in weird ways, it must be gerrymandered. Is that like a fair representation of what gerrymandering is? It's easy to poke fun at some of the shapes of these districts. Like back in the last decade, we had a district in Maryland that people called the upside down praying mantis. We also had a district in Illinois that people called the rabbit on the skateboard. But there's more to it than meets the eye. Oftentimes, as we'll hear in this series, you can debate whether or not the reasons that the districts were drawn that way are valuable. And I think sometimes a lot of people would agree with the reasons that those districts were drawn that way. You know, one of the conclusions that I come to in talking to people around the country about gerrymandering is that oftentimes it's in the eye of the beholder. One man's gerrymander is another man's treasure, right? But when it gets down to it, the fundamentals of gerrymandering, there are two building blocks, right? There's packing and then there's cracking. So let's lay out those building blocks. So when a party is trying to gain an advantage through drawing the map, they'll resort to packing and cracking. And packing is essentially taking the other party's voters and throwing them all together in the same district so as to waste their votes. Cracking, on the other hand, is taking voters from the other party and dividing them into multiple districts so as to dilute their votes and also waste those votes. So a combination of the two is often effective at creating a map that gives an inflated advantage to the mapmaker's party. Those are two terms that we're going to hear repeatedly throughout this series because they're very handy tools in achieving whatever you want on a political map. But actually, once you dig into it, partisan politicians are not the only ones that are redistributing people on a political map. We're actually, all of us Americans, are redistributing ourselves on the political map. And we're going to get into that next. But first, a word from this episode's sponsor, Casper Mattress. You might say that Democrats fell asleep on the job when they got wiped out in the 2010 midterms and gave Republicans control over the redistricting process in many states around the country. Well, maybe some of those Democrats were having a really great sleep on a Casper mattress. And if that's the case, well, then who can blame them? Casper uses design feedback from over 500,000 customers. Their sleep scientists have taken that feedback and created a remarkably supportive bed. Casper's comfort foams guarantee you sleep cool and provide the right pressure relief and spinal alignment so you keep perfectly balanced in cushiony comfort. And Casper's support foam brings it all together with long-lasting durability you can count on. It all adds up, giving you the best sleep you've ever had. Plus, Casper lets you try it out for 100 nights in your own home, risk-free. 
They ship it to you for free in a box so small you won't believe it holds a mattress. And they'll come pick it up for you if you don't love it and refund you everything. No questions asked. You deserve to have a great night's sleep every night. So get a Casper mattress. Go to casper.com and use code POLITICS for $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. That's casper.com code POLITICS and get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, back to our conversation about gerrymandering. Like I said, packing and cracking is something that's done by map drawers on purpose to achieve a specific political result. But there's also a term that's going to come up again and again that has the same effect as packing and cracking, but is actually not gerrymandering and not done by partisan politicians. And that's self-sorting, which is basically the way that us Americans move around the country and place ourselves in districts and in counties. So Dave, can you explain a little bit of how that dynamic is working in America today? Yeah, to be blunt, people are voting with their feet. They're moving to places where the majority of their neighbors and friends agree with their political and social values. So you see Democrats clustering in cities. You see rural areas trending increasingly red. So the result is that 61% of Americans in the 2016 election lived in what we would call landslide counties, counties that gave either party's nominee at least a 20-point margin. How long has this trend been going on, and how extreme is it today? It's been coming around for about a half century, but just to illustrate what's happened in the last several decades, take two retail chains, Whole Foods and Cracker Barrel. Back in 1992, when Bill Clinton won the presidency, he won 59% of the counties that today have a Whole Foods and 40% of the counties that today have a Cracker Barrel. That's a 19-point gap. Well, in 2016, Donald Trump won 76% of Cracker Barrel counties and 22% of Whole Foods counties, a 54-point gap, nearly triple what we saw in 1992. The county boundaries didn't change. It was America's voting patterns that became more polarized. Do we know why this is happening? People obviously like I guess, hang out with people who think like them. But is that all it is? What's behind these really stark trends? So there are a couple of things. People obviously feel more comfortable around others who share their values when it comes to politics and social issues. But there's something else at work as well. The professional class of college-educated voters, they tend to cluster in the same places where there are lots of jobs that are highly paid. And then you also have generational replacement. It used to be that Democrats were very strong in the South. Well, those FDR Democrats are pretty much gone from the electorate. They've been exiting for a number of years. And as a result, the South has become more Republican, while cities in the North and the Sun Belt have become more favorable to Democrats. And so, again, what we're talking about is not gerrymandering. It's just people making up their own minds about where they want to live. And that can end up having effects on who gets elected. I mean, basically packing Democrats in one area, packing Republicans in another area can have basically the same effect as a politician drawing a line to pack voters in one area versus another area. Right. And this is only increasing. And it was the case throughout the last decade that Democrats were doing pretty poor in rural areas. But what really polarized the country further in 2016 was that the rural South fell away from Democrats in such dramatic fashion and became such safe Republican territory. One thing I think that's important to point out in all of this is 
people ask, you know, what is more responsible for the trends in our political system? You know, the polarization, the lack of competitive elections. Is it gerrymandering or is it self-sorting? When I think really the truth is that gerrymandering is only possible because of self-sorting. You can't draw a circle around a group of Democrats unless they've already made themselves a group of Democrats, right? If Republicans and Democrats lived side by side and, you know, didn't always vote one way or the other, kind of changed their minds from one election to the next, gerrymandering would be actually, it would actually be impossible, right? There's this egghead debate in academic circles over whether it's gerrymandering or sorting that's driven Congress to such extremes. The truth is they work hand in hand. If you have a state that's become very polarized, where Democrats and Republicans are clustered near each other, then it becomes easier than ever for someone drawing the map to draw districts that heavily favor or disfavor a party. Just imagine a state where every precinct voted the exact same way. It would be impossible for whoever's drawing the map to manipulate the boundaries for partisan gain. Yeah, the dynamic between gerrymandering and self-sorting is a really complex and interesting one. And we're going to talk about it plenty more. But before we go, let's preview what we're going to look at throughout this series. Basically, in the next four episodes, we're going to go to a different state in each episode and get an understanding of the effects of gerrymandering on the ground and then what reformers are trying to do to counteract those effects. So first, we're going to head to Wisconsin. And essentially, in Wisconsin, we're going to focus on partisan gerrymandering, which is probably the most popular or best known types of gerrymandering. And the focus there is really partisan bias. So let's explain that term because listeners are going to hear us talk plenty about it. Partisan bias is the degree to which a map, as exhibited through a series of elections, favors one party beyond the partisan lean of the state. So for example, nationally, Republicans in 2012 only won 49 percent of all votes cast for a major party for House, won 53 percent of the seats. That's a partisan bias of about four points, and that was repeated in 2014 and 16. And so essentially, reformers in Wisconsin want to get rid of that, and they've actually gone to the Supreme Court to try to get rid of partisan bias in their state. And that case is hanging in the balance now. So we will explore the case that they're making in that episode. So after that, we're going to head to North Carolina and look at racial gerrymandering and attempts to kind of figure out the best ways to represent minorities in government. It's a really complex and oftentimes emotional debate. And a lot of it revolves around the Voting Rights Act from 1965. And, you know, one of the key provisions from the Voting Rights Act is the creation of these majority-minority districts. So can you just lay out for us what a majority-minority district is? A majority-minority district is a district that includes a population that's over 50 percent of one minority group. And without the proliferation of these kinds of districts in the early 90s, a lot of the prominent African-American and Latino members of Congress we know today wouldn't have been elected. And I mean, the conversation gets a lot more complex than that in that there are a lot of people today within the African-American community, within the Democratic Party, who question the value of these districts. So we'll get into that debate. But the third state we're going to head to 
is Arizona. And I think this is personally one of my favorite conversations when it comes to gerrymandering. It's the conversation about competitive elections. Why don't we have competitive elections? What can we do to foster competitive elections? And Arizona kind of went for it. They have a commission. And I think they're the only state in the country that requires their commission to draw competitive districts, right? Right. And not all commissions are created equal. We'll cover that ground. But some states like California have commissions that are prohibited from taking into account political data. Arizona's commission is unique because it encourages the creation of politically competitive seats. And that turned into basically a statewide soap opera. It's hard to believe before you start digging into stories about gerrymandering that reading out census tract data and drawing lines on a map could really kind of like bring a state to a political standstill. But it can happen. And you will hear about that in Arizona. See, Galen, this is why we call redistricting Lord of the Flies on steroids. I mean, after reporting out that episode, I believe it. it may sound crazy. But the last place that we're going to is California, which you mentioned. They also have a commission, but contrary to Arizona, they don't try to foster competitive elections. What they really focus on is preserving communities of interest, drawing geographically cohesive districts. The way that I like to explain it is when people look at a map and say, that district looks funky, that must be gerrymandered. California said, okay, we'll solve that. We'll draw the people who want to be all clumped together into a district. Basically, that's what they did, right? Except not all people wanted to be clumped together. Right. I mean, it also ends up being contentious. Right. And you asked earlier, what is a district? I'd ask, what is a beautiful district? Because it really is in the eye of the beholder. So in this conversation about how to draw a district around a community or in a geographically cohesive way, there are a few somewhat bureaucratic terms that will come up, but they're pretty fundamental to redistricting in general. So one is compact. Everyone wants a compact district. What does that mean? Geometrists can't agree on what constitutes a compact district. That's part of the reason so many districts have been subject to so much litigation. But if I had to say... I'd say a compact district is one that is drawn mostly out of whole communities that doesn't have a crazy shape that's located all in one media market. Also, districts are supposed to be contiguous, which is all the parts of the district connect to each other. And believe it or not, this has been a source of controversy over the years because not so long ago, there were two districts in North Carolina that actually crossed over each other. Is that contiguous? Uh, that one is actually easy. I think the answer is no. So one of the simple yes or no questions in redistricting. And then lastly, I mean, this is complex, but how would you define a community of interest? So a community of interest could be anything you want it to be. It could be a racial group. It could be a collection of towns that are all within the same school district. It could be a group of like-minded voters. I think oftentimes this almost just gets made up in your mind. You know, where do you go to school? Where do you worship? What's the restaurant that you like? I mean, I heard from one commissioner in Arizona that somebody came to a public hearing and said, you know, this is the Chinese restaurant I like to go to. This is where I walk my dog. That's my community of interest. Can you please put it in one congressional district? Right? I mean, okay, then that's a community of interest, right? So as you're probably starting to understand, a lot of these different topics that come up in the redistricting process are up for debate. And that's precisely why gerrymandering is such a difficult issue 
to really wrap your head around and really reform. But that's what we're going to be looking into throughout this series. And just to give listeners a hint at where this is all headed, the reality is that a lot of these terms that we're talking about, you know, competitive districts, preserving communities of interest, they actually conflict with each other, right? I mean, what's a community of interest? Oftentimes, it's like-minded voters. So it's people who live in one area who think similarly. Well, if you put all of those people in a congressional district, you're going to have probably a district that votes Republican or votes Democratic. That's not a competitive district. If you want a competitive district, you may very well have to break those people up. And so a lot of the conversation about gerrymandering and redistricting, it's just making these value choices about what matters more to a state when it comes to drawing district lines. Exactly. Redistricting is a game of trade-offs. And if you're creating more minority opportunity districts in the South, you might be detracting from the competitiveness of surrounding districts. So there are judgment calls, there are trade-offs. Not every group is going to end up happy. Amen. Not every group is going to end up happy. I can tell you that one for sure. And at the end of all of this, we're going to meet back up and talk about some of you know what we've learned share some ideas for how to save the republic. No, I'm kidding. But but to wrap up, Dave, on a more personal note, do you know what district you live in? Of course. I live in Virginia's 8th, just like well, a lot of people in the Beltway. Are you happy with your district? <laughs> well, it does have kind of a funky shape, but it is a pretty logical assortment of D.C.'s punditocracy. Now, that's what I call a community of interest. But <laughs> I actually am not super familiar with the district that I live in because I just moved, but I live in New York's 10th district. And one thing that I actually found out today when I was looking into the different districts in New York is that there's only one competitive district in New York City. Do you know where it is? It's the 11th district based on Staten Island. Yes, exactly. So it's a good lesson for anybody who's interested in learning about, in particular, self-sorting, maybe also gerrymandering, go look at New York State's congressional districts on Wikipedia, and you will see every district around the city favors Democrats by 20 points or more, some even up towards 45 points. And then when you go out into rural upstate New York, you see that all of those districts advantage Republicans by like four points, by six points. So Republicans are not really wasting their votes very much at all in the rural part of upstate New York. And Democrats are packing in their votes in the city and end up wasting a lot of votes here. Right. And that's true in a lot of parts of the country. One thing we'll get into is the Democrats are at a real natural geographic disadvantage. A lot of their voters are clustered in overwhelmingly Democratic districts. And those districts aren't necessarily gerrymanders. They're just central cities. Meanwhile, Republicans have a more efficiently distributed electorate. And so they're able to win more districts with fewer votes. If you heard that, Democrats, basically, if you want to win elections, you've got to leave the cities. You've got to move out to uh, the rural parts of the country. I mean, it's kind of true. Democrats, to win back the House in 2018, need either a really unpopular Republican president or a resettlement program. <laughs> a resettlement program. That sounds like it should spark some conversation, which is what we actually hope to do with the Facebook group that we've started. It's called The Gerrymandering Project. So if you go to Facebook and search The Gerrymandering Project, you will be able to connect with us, 
share your experiences with gerrymandering and redistricting, ask your own questions, answer some of our questions, and maybe share some solutions that you have in mind for, you know, how we can deal with this whole system. But for now, I think that's all we've got. So Dave, thanks so much for joining me today. Anytime. And listeners should also keep an eye out for more of our work on gerrymandering at the mothership, 538.com. We have some great features coming out in the next couple months. And before we let you go today, I want to give you a preview of next week's episode in which we head to Wisconsin to look at partisan bias. A verbal assault by Senate Democrats didn't stop Republicans from passing a new plan to redraw Wisconsin's political boundaries. If you think the U.S. House of Representatives has gerrymandered, you ain't seen nothing yet until you look at Wisconsin State Assembly districts. It's just like, you know, somebody has put a gag in your mouth. You will never have the opportunity to really make your voice heard again. The dishonesty, the deceitfulness, the secrecy just suddenly became crystal clear to us. It was incredible. We had no idea what we were going to find. What the plaintiffs are claiming is essentially that they have a constitutional right to proportional representation of political parties, and that right doesn't exist. If this case doesn't win, I don't think there will ever be a judicial decision about partisan gerrymandering. I would not trust anybody who says they can tell you with confidence how this case is going to be decided. Join us next week to hear that full story. This episode was produced by me, Galen Druk, and edited by Chadwick Matlin. Our politics editor is Micah Cohen, and our intern is Kate Bakhtirova. Tony Chow is in the control room. Remember to check out our Facebook group, The Gerrymandering Project, and you can also get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com or send a tweet. If you're a fan of the show, leave the Politics Podcast a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store. When you leave a rating, it helps our rankings, which helps others discover the show. Or just tell someone about this series. Of course, you can find our weekly politics podcast in this feed, and we'll be back with the next episode of The Gerrymandering Project next Thursday. Until then, thanks for listening.